This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. You've heard of the Master Plan. Nope, it's not the song by Oasis. And nope, it's not the Dalek Master Plan either. This episode is about the Andrew Cartmel Master Plan. podcast land it's the doctor podcast episode 91 in the caravan as always my trusty companion james hello james hello and i'm glad i'm trusty well trusty worthy ish i suppose you mean i'm just here basically don't you i'm here <laughs> you turn up yes pretty much yes. i turn up when i'm told to which is more than we can say for a certain mr tom but uh, but there we go. We won't mention it again, given that he's going to be featuring in a majority of this episode. <laughs> yes, yes. He's not even here and he's in more of the episode than we are. Because um, very recently, uh, Tom spoke with Andrew Cartmel, who was the uh, script editor for, for much of the latter part of the uh, classic era of Doctor Who. And, and he had a quite long chat with the man about all sorts of things. Yes, indeed. Uh, the conversation Tom had with Andrew was incredibly wide-ranging. And if you consider just the Doctor Who questions that you could ask Andrew without talking about anything else, without even mentioning the weather, without mentioning what he's having for lunch, then you've got a heck of a lot of stuff to talk about. Remember, Andrew was there when the show was, well, I was going to use the word cancel, but Doctor oh, Who was you never really oh, no, cancelled. No, 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 no. It just kind of dwindled. But Tom being Tom managed to expand the conversation to cover all manner of things and including what was planned for the season that never was, season 27. So Tom, over to you. We're at Big Finish Towers. I'm lucky enough to be joined by the great Andrew Cartmel. Right, okay. So Andrew, I should start at the top. Um, You were the script editor. Uh, on, on the televised version of Doctor Who between 1987 and 1989. Uh, yeah, for three seasons. Very nice. Um, just to absolutely be clear about this, just for, for some of the younger listeners as well, what's the role of a script editor within the production? Well, if you're watching television these days and watching American television, there's a character called, a person in the production team called the showrunner. Mm. And back in the olden days at the BBC when I was working there, that was pretty much what a script editor was. The script editor was in charge of the writers, in charge of the script. He would choose the writers, he would brief them, he would get them to write the scripts. He might write some scripts himself, he might rewrite other people's scripts. So he was, in a way, like a producer who was in charge of the scripts, whereas the producer, in quotes, was in charge of the show and all the logistics and the budget and everything else. Uh, in America, you'd call this person, the person would have the title as a producer on the show. And in those days at the BBC, the script editor had considerable power and autonomy on, on uh, Doctor Who. There was John Nathan Turner ran the show, uh-huh. and I ran the scripts. And so, if I did something, I'd have to clear it with John. And then that was basically it. Sometimes John might have to clear something with the head of department, the head of drama, or the head of series and serials. But 
so you, the whole creative team of the show, the decisions were made by two people and perhaps a third person occasionally. And that's quite different from what you have now. Although they're beginning to, because the script editor now um, doesn't ha quite have the same uh, autonomy and, and uh, elbow room mm. that we used to have. But they are introducing this notion of a showrunner. And if that comes over from America, that'll be like a reintroduction of the old script editor's role. Okay, interesting. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned that there's a lot of autonomy. Um, the script editor role on Doctor Who that, that you received was your first major interaction with, with, with large-scale television, wasn't it? It was my first job. Wow, okay. I, I was, I, it wasn't my first job job, it was my first job in television. I'd been, I'd been to university, I'd always wanted to be a writer, I'd been writing my spare time, I went to university. Mm. I left university, made a concerted effort to break into television by writing a lot of scripts, sending them off. Got quite a lot of attention, had quite a lot of meetings, but nothing actually happened. Actually sold some scripts. They were optioned, made made a bit of money, but it looked like that I wasn't going to take off. So I got a job, I done a degree in computer science, on the basis that um, they used to send women to learn typing, so they had something to fall back on if they couldn't get married. So I, I sort of studied computer science in the the sort of spirit of having something to fall back on. So I got a, uh, a job at a very interesting firm in Cambridge doing some development on CAD CAM systems so the way the world works is if you're desperately trying to get into television you won't but if you then suddenly get a nice job doing something else TV comes knocking yeah exactly <laughs> and so that's exactly what happened were you very much were you mentored through the role I mean, as you say it's a, it's a lot of responsibility to have as a, I think you're 28, 29 no it wasn't mentoring it was being chucked in at the deep end but right. that was fine I mean there were people there's a very open kind of a, um System of a very open culture, so I worked on a in an office on a corridor on which there are lots of other offices with lots of other script editors. So if I needed that kind of help or had questions, there was people I could go to. John was helpful. I mean, he was helpful and supportive, although very busy. Oh. So I didn't really need a mentor. I just needed a natural aptitude, a willingness to learn, and some brains in my head. Perfect. That was all that was required. Wow. So. Unfortunately, um, as, as, as your script editor, Doctor, the show was, as you say, not so much cancelled, but not renewed. It just sort of withered on the vine. Mm. It, uh, they just sort of let it die by sort of cutting off the oxygen supply. John mm. was left sitting in his office with no word of what was happening. I got an offer to work on another show, so rather than just sit and twiddle my thumbs, I went on to do that. Mm. And, yeah, Doctor was just, just allowed to sort of fade away. And it, it is a great shame because we were just really beginning to get it right. And I, uh, my feeling is that there's a lot of prejudice against it. It's hard to look back to a time when Doctor Who was really despised and reviled in the BBC because now it's so highly regarded. Hmm. But it had gone through some real doldrums. And John Nathan Turner has to take a bit of responsibility for that because he presided over the show. He was a producer for such a long time. And that was the period when people began to take against it. By people, I mean sort of higher up at the BBC Michael Grade famously didn't like the show yeah. and I've, I've watched a lot of not all but a lot of John's output before I joined the show and there were some episodes that I could see might have some episodes and some decisions about the show overall which might have alienated people and made them, them angry and made them dislike the show so but, but the problem is all that had happened before I joined before Sylvester joined before Sophie joined so I think all of the problems that eventually poisoned Doctor Who and put it into a hiatus for, for decades. They, they were things that had happened 
before under the old regime and I've often said that John had sort of dug himself into a hole but by the time the show ended he was busy dug- digging himself out of the hole mm. so in a class, it was a classic case of them pulling the plug on us just when we were beginning to get it right again I think you're right if we look at the stories from season 26 and so you, you, season, tw- season 25 and season 26 the character of the Doctor is developing nicely the, st- the, st- the, the writing has got stronger again and it's interesting that we're here today to think about to record some of the lost stories because these are the scripts that you commissioned had you commissioned them or were you beginning to no, write them? These, the lost stories never existed as scripts they existed as storylines discussions vague ideas notions daydreams and hopes that was that was what I was going to ask you because you know doing a little bit of research it seemed like there were a couple of opening scenes and there were maybe a few lines here and there um, but, I was, you know, but I was wondering so how much work have you had to put into making have you had to write from the top to bottom with these scripts? It's it's funny. Um, I worked on a show called Dark Knight a few years ago, which was a, a sword and sorcery show. Mm. And the creator of the show, Terry Marcel, um, took a story credit on every s- single episode that was written. And what Terry used to do is he'd write like two sentences, or maybe just one sentence, and the title, and he'd give it to you. And then the writer would do everything else. So you could say that the writer had done virtually everything. But at the same time, if you looked at those sentences and those little concepts, that the show all grew from those seeds. I mean, huh. in, in a sense, it was all there. So, in a se- in a similar way, although we've written the scripts completely from top to bottom, as you say, in some cases, the the the, the, the seed of the story was so strong in a sense that the concept was all there. Okay, and it grew out of it quite naturally. Okay, that makes, that makes sense to me. I mean, so it's not really. A re- it's, is, it, is it revisiting the scripts? Is it reimagining them, or is it? a whole new creative process for you it's a whole new creative process but going back to a kind of interrupted conversation mm. um, decades ago yeah. so it was very interesting and strange in a nice way it, it's to sort of return to this unfinished business and it's really a, a pleasure to do that is there a sense of closure for you personally about having these, these stories finally realised yeah absolutely mm. well, but in, you, you describe it as closure but it doesn't feel like that because it feels like we're starting, it feels like an opening up, it feels like a beginning rather than an end. And that's the thing, I mean, it could be argued that Doctor Who, in one sense, in a televisual way, stopped at the end of the 80s, but that it grew into, well, the studio that we're sitting in now, this whole, uh, the whole idea of Big Finish, where the stories and the visuals are perhaps way better than they ever could have been in the 80s. I mean, did, did you find it, how do you approach writing for Doctor Who for audio? Is, it different, is there a different process? writing it for TV or editing it for TV? Well, you've got an unlimited budget, special effects budget. <laughs> yeah, quite. I mean. And they say that the pictures are better on radio. So I, I love writing for um, for audio. In fact, I've got to say that um, David Richardson hmm. uh, and I, although we've had our fruitful creative differences and we've disagreed about a lot of things, he's been very helpful about showing a writer like me who's basically a screenwriter. He's been very helpful on the mechanics and the philosophy of what what works better in audio, so he's been very helpful in that. So, mm. if if I was writing it more like a, a script for for the screen, he would always provide a, a, help, a useful reality check. So that was, that's been very good. There's maybe a question about whose vision is being realised. Is it still very much your vision, or do you think it's? I mean, when you write, are you very much an auteur, or do you or do you like a lot of input from people? Well. No, <laughs> no. Okay. I, 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 I do want. Uh, I think any writer wants it to be their own 
baby. I had such, as I said earlier, it was just me and John basically, occasionally the head of department. I like to kind of run it myself huh. and, you know, your basic egomaniac power freak. What, what inspires you? Well, that's an interesting thing. When they ask Stephen King where he gets his ideas, he has a number of stock answers because writers dread this question. Mm. Um, Stephen King either says, from our Lord Satan, <laughs> okay. mail order from Minnesota. I mean, <laughs> that's where he gets his ideas. Uh, it's funny to say that. By the time we get around to finishing a script and talking about it, perhaps with somebody like you, it's very hard to reconstruct the process. Mm. Um, I can tell you the, the basic ideas I, are, it's hard to put a finger on where they came from, but as you write a script, what you start with, you start with an inspiration and a basic concept, and that, that's, it's very elusive to identify where that came from. But every day, you're involved in the nuts and bolts of it, and there's small creative decisions. Yeah. So there's small creative decisions about how am I going to approach this scene? How am I going to get the story point across? How do I introduce this character? Um, the way I get those is I find the best thing to do is mindless activity, doing the hoovering, shaving, doing the washing up, anything where you can let your mind wander. That's, that is my approach to it. Other writers got totally... There's a great science fiction and mystery writer called Frederick Brown. Hmm. And what he used to do was he used to take uh, a bus trip across country at night and he'd take a, his, a torch with him, a, a flashlight and a notebook and he'd, he'd write on buses at night. Perfect. So everybody's got their own, uh, own little way. But it, me, it's, it's sort of pottering around doing boring things but letting my mind be free. Like I was um, putting up an Ikea shelf yesterday <laughs> and I was just furious because, you know, I couldn't, you know, it was Ikea so it was difficult getting the screws and nothing would fit. And I realised that, that I was pissed off because... I wanted to be sitting down and writing, but of course, this is a perfect opportunity to be thinking about stuff, doing the planning, and and getting the ideas. You ask me where you get the ideas. I get them while I'm doing things like putting together IKEA furniture. That's got a displacement activity, so the body is. It's maybe it's like entering a trance state. The body is doing something, so the mind, as you say, it's free to wonder. It's multitasking. Multitasking. Oh my <laughs> God, you must you have, you have an extra gene. How lovely. Um, is Doctor Who a children's show? The answer is no. At my job interview. I went to see Jonathan Powell, who's head of series and serials. Mm. John Nathan Turner had uh, wanted me to join the show, he, and but I had to get the go-ahead from the, the big boss. So I went to see the big boss, and he asked me various questions. He asked me about science fiction, what I was reading. I pitched a little story to him, which was a nice little story. I, I wish I could remember it now. I pitch it to you. Um, he, he he said he, when I was talking about science fiction, he mentioned Robert Heinlein. So. Jonathan Powell was no dummy. He knew a bit about science fiction, which was good. And he said, who is Doctor Who for? And I thought, I'll give the diplomats an answer. I said, it's for everyone. And he said, no, it's for children. And I just nodded. But in my head, I was thinking, no, it's not, Jonathan. It's it's not. It's not for children. I think that it should be done in such a way that children can watch. I don't think it should be sort of X-rated or, you know, for adult viewers only. I think that would be a shame because it has grown out. It was originally conceived as a show for yeah, children. absolutely. And I think it should always be of such a form that children can watch it too. Mm. But I think it's it's basically for adults, but also open to children. It's certainly not for children. Agreed. I mean, it, uh, it's probably best described, to, to my mind, it's probably best described as a, as a continuing drama. Um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's an amazing show. that the, the storytelling mechanism is second to none. 
it can be anything. If it's time, as famously, if it's time to change the lead actor, the lead actor can change, and the show, and the show itself, right, it's endlessly on. renewable, which is one of its great strengths. Mm. What's your opinion of the new series? I love it. I love it. I, I liked with Russell's stuff. Mm. Um, I was delighted that he. The first thing I was delighted about is the casting um, Billy Piper. Mm. I thought as soon as I heard that announced in the press, I thought, yeah, he's got the right idea. Because John Nathan Turner would have been proud to do it. She was perfect. She was just perfect casting. Yeah. She brought a lot of publicity with her. She was ideal. I thought, yeah, this guy may know what he's doing. And so I, I and I love the fact that it was instantly a success. But Russell's stuff, I really began to like it with the third series. Hmm. When, in fact, um, that was when uh, Martha Jones, the Martha Jones character. Uh, Freeman, Jim, yes. Joined, yeah. yeah, Freeman. Yeah. She was fantastic. Again, a great companion. So those early stories in that, the first there was gridlock and there was the one where a Smith and Jones it's called yeah. there's another yeah. one so that was when I, I really felt it had been hitting its stride I thought it had been rather hit and miss up to then but I thought it was really going great guns and then Stephen Moffat is terrific I, and again they've cast the, the mm. chick they've cast as the companion perfect casting uh, Karen Gillan as Amy Pond yeah, yeah Amy Pond it, she's super so again very astute but I love the fact they've got writers running the show now. I think that's that's very much to be encouraged. It's interesting. That's a good point. Um, it could be argued that the Doctor is an idea. It's very, very much a cipher because a strong enough actor can, can impose him, um, himself on yeah. that role. And if you can have that idea live in the mind of a child, then there's no reason for the story to ever stop. And again, it could be argued that with Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat, what you've got are people who saw Doctor Who, the idea is in their heads as children or as young adults, and now well, they're they were fans. Them. It's interesting that they're doing such a good job because there's always a danger with fans that they'll be so blinkered and constrained by the, the mythos or the um, mm. the canon, is that what they call it? Yeah. Well, this is, this is it. I mean, some, some episodes of the show are needlessly weighed down, it seems, sometimes, but I need to be circularly correct, if that makes any sense. I think uh, there are a number of stories in the 80s which just don't make any sense and fall apart because they're trying to be correct. But, you know, we, sh we shall see. I, I think it's, again, I think fans, the, the shows should be such that they can be enjoyed by the fans, but they shouldn't be aimed at the fans. How do you think these audio dramas that you've, that you've recreated, or sorry, created, I should say, sound you know, in terms of your vision for them? Are you pleased with the way things are going? Oh, I love the voices. Oh, Beth has rain. Because <laughs> you kind of fall in love with the character, and you're writing it a certain way, and you hear it a certain way, and she nails it. Um, she's just, she's. I, I just love to hear her do it. The thing is, I already knew what Sophie and Sylph sounded like, so when I wrote them, I had their voices already in my head from experience. But she's come in and she's done exactly what I, I wanted, which is kind of um, intelligent, amused, amusing, posh, um, naughty. Great. Are you writing Sylvester and Sophie as they were? Or have you listened to some of the later work and adapted to I don't think the characters have changed substantially. Of course, mm. the Doctor doesn't really change. I mean, he changes. The cipher. Yeah. He changes from um, regeneration to regeneration because you get a new um, actor into play. It, but he, I don't think he changes much within being. You know, when Sylvester's era, I don't think he's changed much within that. Although we, you find your foot feet, don't you? You gradually. It took a while for us to get Sylvester up to speed. Slightly darker, stronger, more mysterious. Once you've achieved well, that, I think you kind of have it, keep it at cruising speed. Well, when you've got an actor that's as, that is as versatile as Sylvester actually is, it's you know it's it's, it's wonderful to see him swinging through the because, park. Because um, yeah. he's got a, a, a great voice, and that's not always the case with people who are good on the screen. That the voice might be not their greatest strength, but Sylvester was terrific on the screen. He's got this lovely voice, so he's just perfect for these audios. 
Sophie too. I mean, she does. You can't watch television without hearing uh, her doing <laughs> a voiceover that? for an ad because she's got such a lovely voice. Well, there's some very talent. There are some, there are some very talented people in the building today. It must be. Uh, what, if anything, have you learned from your involvement with Doctor Who? Frankie. Well, it's a difficult one to tease out because it was the first, as you mentioned yourself, it was the first TV show I worked on. So a lot of it wasn't just learning about Doctor Who; it was learning the whole process of television. Mm. Then, to add to that, you have to take into account that the way television was made then isn't the same way it's made now. Uh. So I've got to un- had to unlearn some of the things I learned. But what you're basically talking about is learning about writing. I can give you some specific examples, actually. The lovely thing about being a script editor is you get to see all kinds of different writers and how they do it, and really good writers, because I, I hired, I was lucky enough to hire a clutch of really terrific writers from Rona Monroe to, to Ian Briggs, yeah. and they all have a different approach. Okay. And, um, for instance, Briggs, Briggsy, as we call them, his, he, he, one of the things that he would do is he would write, when he wrote a script, he would write scenes out of order, like he might write a scene from the end of the script or the middle of the script. Uh, when he was first doing it, I thought, I'd never thought of doing that, I thought, that's so weird. But it makes so much sense. <laughs> so I learned that. And also, the thing about Briggs that was interesting is he's one of the best writers on character I've ever come across, even to this day. I think his characters are superb, so I'd look at it and think, God, he creates really good, interesting, well-rounded, vivid characters. So you'd think, oh, I want a bit of that action, I want to learn how to do that. Mm. And the way you'd learn is by practicing and by observing. And then Kevin Clark, another one of the writers we had, very good writer, he said, the imagination is a muscle, which by which he meant you exercise it. And you see, I'd never thought that. I, I'd always been of the feeling that, that I'd sort of hoard my good ideas and wait for the perfect day to use them. But that's not the way to develop as a writer. That, that if you've got a good idea, use it now. Um, put it out there. Write something now. Don't save it. Get it out there. Write there. Because you develop through practice. The imagination is a muscle. And if you use those good ideas now, more good ideas will come. So those are the really crucial things I think that I learned. Um, mm. I learned a lot of stuff after Doctor Who that I could go into, but the question was what did I learn? On Doctor Who? Yeah, and those were some examples. If you could change one thing about the world you live in, or yourself, what would it be? Let, let's rephrase it. If I could change one thing about the way television is made today, please. I would um, I'd make sure that all the creative people involved, all the people involved in telling a writer what to do, because there's a lot of them, yeah. I would. I think it would be a good idea if all of those people were themselves writers. You see, in American television, you sit down and watch a show at the beginning, there's a list of 15 or 20 producers on the show. Now, in America, all of those producers are writers. They're all television writers, and if they haven't actually written an episode of the show you're watching, they've written episodes of other shows. Mm. So I think the, the thing that would be most beneficial to the British television ecology is if we adopted that system over here, whereby the, all the people involved in script development and production on the show were actually writers. If not on that show themselves, that show itself, then at least on other shows. And I think that would be very help, healthy and helpful. Occasionally you do get a producer credit on an American show and it's not uh, a writer, but it's usually somebody who's directed for the show and has, has directed the keynote episode, that you know, the episode that sets the star for the whole thing. Whereas in Britain you've still got a lot of people who are involved who don't really have the creative credentials, I feel. So if we're talking at a professional level about one thing I'd change, I'd change that. So I turned on my TV uh, a few months ago uh, to watch Newsnight, and there was Andrew Cartmel talking about the Happiness Patrol. Um, you weren't as startled as my family was. Well, can you just expand on that whole story? What, what exactly happened there? What exactly happened was uh, my agent rang me up 
and said there's a, a, a reporter from the Sunday Times who wants to talk to you um, because Sylvester is doing a, a new series. Uh, I got the impression it's a comedy series for the BBC and he wants to speak to you, Andrew, for a bit of background. Well, it turned out that this this was a very this is a version of the truth rather than the truth. Um, so I spoke to this guy, and he said, "Oh, Sylvester was saying about the old days when you guys were um, young radical firebrands and so on." And so I spoke to him, and it, it's uh, Sunday Times report in a very unguarded fashion. Thought no more about it. Actually, when I, I went out and bought the, I was vain enough to go out and buy the paper on Sunday, Sunday Times, and I looked all through the TV section, and there wasn't a word and I thought oh that's it you know sometimes they don't run these stories but then emails started to ping into my inbox <laughs> and uh, my friend in Cambridge sent me an email saying nice interview question nice interview technique I have to remember that answer I thought what else are you talking about then I realised that I, I wasn't in the TV section the interview was in page three of the news section and it had been slanted and this is the bit that wasn't amusing just to give a bit, bit of background mm. um, Sylvester Sylvester was always very active politically and when we were working together, Margaret Thatcher was in power, and there used to be a, an ad campaign in America for Levi bagels, and the ad slogan was, you don't have to be Jewish to love Levi's, and they'd have a picture of an Eskimo kid eating Levi bagel and so on. Okay. Well, what uh, my point is that during the Thatcher years, you didn't have to be left-wing to hate Thatcher, you just had to have an operational heart and soul yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to dislike the kind of oppressive dictatorial selfish, greedy, elitist kind of government that was going on. Okay. So, um, but you see, I um, I went through that period and it was great and I worked on the show and I, I had the feelings I had. But Sylvester always, he was always better at remembering the sort of stuff I said th than I did because <laughs> I, sat, <laughs> I sat down to write my, my memoirs and Sylvester did the introduction. I, was, I went to talk to him about it and he said, do you remember that interview, your first, the job interview you had with John? My interview, he said, Yeah, I said, I, I don't remember it. He said, What you said to John was, John asked you if there's one thing you could do with the show. One, it's a bit like you asked me if, it, if there's one thing you could change. John said, If there's one thing you could do, what would it be? And I said, Overthrow the government. And Sylvester told me that. I thought, Yeah, I did say that. That was, I <laughs> so when, um, when this reporter interviewed us, I think he got that from Sylvester and he got it repeated from me. So, which is all true, and it was all quite amusing, but it wasn't amusing the way that the, um, the newspaper had slatted the story, right. because the way they'd taken the story <clears throat> and framed it, it was BBC is a nest of left-wing radicals who are encouraged to um, uh, indoctrinate people and undermine liberty. And I was really furious about this, because not only was it not true, it was this was being given a but, uh, the thing was, it didn't just appear in the Sunday Times. Suddenly it was all over the internet, and the following days in all the newspapers, there was, it was like a perfect storm. And mm -hmm. Definitely. it had been slanted as an attack on the BBC. And this was at a time when the BBC was already taking some lumps. There was this thing called Saxgate. And the thing is, yeah, yeah. I just I love the BBC. I listened to Radio 4 all day, occasionally Radio 3 and Radio 2. Um, BBC 3 and 4... Uh, you know, it's wonderful institutions. All my favourite programming is on BBC Four, occasionally on BBC Two, and it's the BBC is just the jewel in the crown. And the notion, and the, there is, I don't think you have to be paranoid to 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 think that there is a certain agenda among certain right wing billionaire media moguls who would like to see the BBC muzzled and diminished because it would it would improve their business prospects. Mm. And that there is there is and has been political moves afoot to do damage to the BBC, and suddenly. The things I'd said were being used as ammunition in this war against the BBC. So I was furious about this. And uh, on the Monday, 
uh, the day after this is broke, I got a phone call from BBC Radio Wales saying, can you come on and talk about this? I said, yeah, great, because in, on the radio, when you're actually interviewed for radio or, or television, it is possible to to alter, to, to sort of edit what you've said to an extent and sort of mm. give it a different slant, but not the way it is in, in the print. In the print press, they can just totally rewrite what you've said, which is what had happened. So I thought, radio is great. I'll be on BBC Radio Wales as a chance to put my own case. Yeah. So I was sitting there waiting for the phone call so I could be on Ra- BBC Radio Wales, but a little bit nervous about being on. I've been on the radio before, but still a little bit nervous. And then I got another phone call saying, can you appear on Newsnight tonight on BBC television <laughs> to talk about the same same story? And so I immediately stopped being worried about BBC Radio Wales and started worrying about being on television. So that's how I ended up on Newsnight, um, putting the, the record straight. Um, the thing was... It's true that we all felt that way, but that doesn't mean that the show was a nest. I mean, they're trying to say that the show was a nest of Marxists, and they got on to the fact that Ben Aronovich, one of the writers on the show, very good writer, his dad was Sam Aronovich, very famous yes. Marxist. Yes. But you see, that didn't mean it. I mean, that didn't mean Ben was a Marxist or a communist. Like everybody else, or just about everybody else, he just reacted against his parents, you okay. know. So they were trying to make this case which just wasn't true. It was What was true is that we certainly f- felt angry at the injustice and the the excesses of the Thatcher era, and in the Happiness Patrol, that was a satire in some way, not a satire of Thatcherism, but a satire. The main character was was a satirical take on Margaret Thatcher, mm-hmm. and so there, there was sort of fragments of truth which they distorted and, and mixed together, manipulated. And being on Newsnight was an attempt, was an opportunity to put that right. And to a great extent, I did. And, and Tim Collins, what they usually do on Newsnight is they get two people. Uh, who have completely different views and let them argue, and while Esler or Paxman play the referee. But in this case, to my great pleasure, Tim Collins was a very clever bloke who knew a lot about Doctor Who. And definitely he, a fan. Yeah, yeah, and also he really respects the, B- the BBC and values the BBC, so we were coming from the same place, so we ended up joining forces. Um, I'm not a natural ally of the Conservative <laughs> government. But, you know, in this case, he was a great bloke, really nice guy, and, really, and we, we had a united front. So it just, actually, what it went out to prove is that people from all corners of the political spectrum will unite to defend the BBC and Doctor Who. The only thing I would change in all of this is when I said to John, I'd like to overthrow the government, what I actually meant was I'd like to topple the government. And there's a subtle distinction there because you couldn't really overthrow the government using... Overthrow suggests overthrow by violent insurrection. And there's no way you could do that with Doctor Who, unless you were sending coded messages to coordinate your troops, you know. But what I... Although I said overthrow, which is a nice, exciting word, what I meant was topple because if there was anything I meant about using Doctor Who, I would have meant by showing up the immorality of something through parable Mm. and through argument and through through dramatizing things, so to topple you can topple a government legitimately, but you can't overthrow a government legitimately. So uh, yeah. in, in all of that whole crazy uh, media <laughs> storm, that's the only thing I the only word that I felt that I'd used wrongly way back then in my interview for overthrow. <laughs> On to happier things. You recently, I say recently, relatively recently, won an award as a stand-up comedian. Yeah, well, what? I'm sadly I didn't win the award. What what it was was. You're fine I always wanted, exactly, I, mm. I always wanted to try stand-up comedy because it fascinated me and it terrified me. Mm. But I always had, I wanted to do it and I had some good jokes. And then there was a competition run by Nicotinell, 
they were smoking. Chew, they could even chewing gum. No, but I, I forget what they. I, that some PR company decided that it'd be good for them to sponsor. Oh, stand-up uh, comedians. Smoke uh, all the flame smoke, and no smoke, smoke. Something smoke, like that. No fire. All fire, no smoke. All fire, no smoke. Something like that. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. And so what it was is they selected comedian, would-be comedians from all over Britain, and you came in and you did a, a brief bit on videotape. Uh, and to see if you qualify as one of the finalists that they'd put into the competition. And I was one of the, I think, three finalists for London, maybe four finalists. That's good to get. And I didn't win. The guy I win was, was actually better than me, much more experienced. So I didn't feel too bad about that. But I did do uh, a bunch of gigs for this competition, uh, and in which I was a, a finalist. I'm so proud. I can't say that enough times. And then I, I went on to do a load more gigs because you can just, they, they have open spots, open mic spots. Hmm. And... I, there's two things that came out of that one was I eventually lost my by around about gig 9 or 10 I lost my stage fright which was wonderful because the stage fright was a horrible feeling my heart goes out to performers everywhere That they say that people like Leonard Cohen still get stage fright so it's after all these years but I had the great good fortune that it went and it was one of the most lovely feelings I've ever had in my life and the other thing I learned was that I, before a gig you talk to the other comedians are going to be on and I say, oh, like this is my ninth gig, and, and they'd say things like, this is my three hundred and ninth. Wow! And these people were really good, uh-huh. and it's not that they hadn't got anywhere, but obviously that they still had a hell of a long way to go. And it was very clear to me that this isn't something you could really dabble in; that it, you'd have to devote yourself to it and work really hard to get somewhere. And I just decided I'd rather put that same energy into my writing rather than oh. do two things in a half-assed way. I'd rather do something wholeheartedly. So I haven't done any stand-up since then, although I still. Um, write down gags and I still think about it and I think I learned a hell of a lot from it it was a really interesting experience it's a shame that there aren't still shows like uh, in fact there may still be but I don't know about them shows like Weekending where you could send one or two jokes in and maybe yeah, like there, there, there is another um, there's recently been something called I think it's called News Jack and uh, Graham Curry another Doctor Who writer and I did send in some gags and I think they were going to use some of Graham's but it's very difficult these things it's very tough to break in the, the one other thing that I learned about from doing stand-up comedy is you think if you're going to try and do stand-up you, what you you think that the big thing to worry about is being heckled yeah. you think oh my god well, how will I deal with the hecklers that turns out not to be the case at all the, the most awful thing that's going to happen to you is not being heckled because if you're being heckled people are listening to you the worst thing that happens is you're up there and the people just ignore you. Indifference. They just, they just sit there talking and don't even listen to you. Oh, so bring God. on the hecklers. It's like, expect, I, I, do you know what, I think I know what you Please mean. Please heckle me. Uh, there's nothing worse for, than a, for a, a, a solo performer than indifference. It's like you're standing there naked and the other person says, I'm not interested, but you've still got to stand there exposing yourself. Well, you're a, a musician, mm. so you know what that's like. And I think it's so ru- even more rude than with a stand-up comedian that people talk when the musicians play. Oh, well... Do you have any more? Pl- do you have plans to write any more Doctor Who? Well, I would love to. Um, I'd love to write more audio adventures. I'd love to write for the um, the TV show. But it's it's funny. The thing is, I haven't. I don't have any specific. Occasionally, if I get an idea, I think that's a Doctor Who idea. I write it down. But and sometimes they're very useful. Some of those ideas came in very useful for this this uh, series when I was working on yeah. the, the show that they called Animal. I say they called it Animal because I was going to call it Blood and Iron. That was based, I mean, I was able to, a lot of material on that came from an idea I just had, thinking if I ever do another Doctor Who, I'll do this, so I wrote it all down. But just to refer to, again to Ben Ar- Aronovich, he, uh, Ben came up with this fantastic story. For, for uh, This was while Russell was still running the show, and he's never sent it in. But I, if Stephen Moffat is listening to this, um, he should 
check this story out because it's just dynamite. I mean, as much as I'd love to sell one of my own scripts, I know that Ben's got this story worked out in some detail, and I just love to see it ha happen. It's just such a brilliant, brilliant doctor, and so Ben. So I think that myself and, and a lot of other writers I know, well, not a lot, but one or two, would do some cracking Doctor Who's, and maybe we'll get a chance to do that. But I don't sort of waste a lot of time worrying about that in particular. I'm, I'm working on other things now. I'm writing an episode of Midsummer Murders. Oh. And uh, it's great. I just love writing. And I'm thinking just about starting a new novel. So I love Doctor Who and would like to do another one. But it's really a case of whether they'll invite me to join the party. And if not, well... Ben's looks like Ben's creating his own TV series. That's another party I can go to, and maybe I'll be creating my own. So there's lots of parties to look forward to. Andy, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that. It was great fun. Cheers. It's been a sheer pleasure. I hope the curry wasn't too much. I think I need a cold towel and a bit of a lie down after that one. That was truly epic. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Andrew, for um, a, a fantastic interview. No, absolutely. And it, it's we've been very, very fortunate to get some really good interviews uh, of late, and uh, they're going to keep on coming. We've still got a few more to bring you as well. And I just think it's fascinating. I mean, the Seventh Doctor era for me is is a bit of an enigma. When I watched it, when it first went out, I hated it. I really didn't like it. <laughs> there was two stories within his era that I really, really enjoyed, and that was Remembrance of the Daleks and Silver Nemesis. I, yes, I did say Silver Nemesis, but I still love that story even even today. Now that I've watched it again, you know, when I'm a little older, there's a lot more that I can appreciate that I didn't first time around. And of course, as a fan, there's lots of questions that I'd like to ask people who are still very much around because it was only about 20 years ago when these programs actually went out. So it's it's great to hear from people like Andrew. So brilliant interview. Thank you very much indeed for talking to Tom. However, we have got another relic, shall we say. No, that's not any good, no. We have got... <laughs> We have got an absolute paragon of a Seventh Doctor story to give away on DVD, haven't we, Trev? I'm very, very excited oh, about this. Another competition. Another you competition. You are so lucky, listeners. You are so lucky. We, we have another competition for a copy on beautiful, shiny DVD of mm. the recent release of um, the Seventh Doctor story, Paradise Towers. Mm. We, we have to come up with a suitably devilish question to perplex our listeners and uh, make them want to enter. So yeah, Absolutely. Mm, I've got one. Okay. Who played mm. the chief caretaker in Paradise Towers? Mm. Now, that's a particularly difficult question. It I, is, isn't it? I have to yeah. say. Anyway, let, let me just change the subject uh, briefly, Trev. Um, I don't know whether you get it over in Australia, but there's uh, an old 70s sitcom, 70s and 80s sitcom, uh, called The Good Life that plays over here. Oh, and that features I love um, that show. Well, there's two. There's, I mean, Richard Briers is is so good in it. He's absolutely fantastic. Him and Penelope Keith. And uh, I just wondered whether or not you'd you'd seen anything that Richard Briers has um, starred in before. 
Richard, Richard. Well, it was probably the first thing I saw Richard Briers in. But mm. the one thing I love Richard Briers in is Monarch of the Glen, mm. where he, he plays, you know, the crusty head of the, uh, um, well, he, he's the laird of the uh, of of the area that he lives in, and mm. Richard Briers does an incredible job of that. He, he is just, he's just such a funny... I mean, he's, for, for me, Richard Bryce is a little bit like Bernard Cribbins, that he's, he's got that, that wonderfully um, comic timing. But, um, yeah, Richard Bryars. Richard Bryars, absolutely. He was in Torchwood as well, you know, Richard Bryars. Richard Bryars, really. I, I suppose we should get back to talk about the competition. So, so just to remind yes. our listeners again, who played the chief caretaker in Paradise Towers. Now, get your entries into feedback at the com with the words, I don't know, Paradise Towers in the subject line or something. Or Richard Briers. <gasps> yeah, true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. Anyway, that's another episode of the Doctor Who podcast recorded and in the can at all for your audio enjoyment. Trev, we have no idea what we're going to be doing next week, have we? No idea whatsoever. We just might... I don't know. Spin the wheel and see what comes up. Oh, let's let's go and interview Russell T Davis or someone like that. Oh, I think. all right, yeah. all right. Okay, I'll 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 just give him a call now. Okay, just get him on the phone. Get him on the phone. You know, he's not doing much now after he's uh, <laughs> he's just designed this car crash of a new TV series. Anyway, let's not go back there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll catch up with you again soon and by the time you download the next episode of the Doctor Who podcast you can rely on the fact that Trevor and I would have thought of something to talk about before we sail off into the sunset we'd like to share with you a track off Alex Day's latest album now you might remember Alex was on the show last year we uh, interviewed him and he's the, he's the writer of some quite um, nifty little uh, I suppose you call them Doctor Who parody songs or Doctor Who homage songs. Um, we, we played one or two in a show last year, which you can check out on the uh, DWP feed. Um, he's back this week with the release of his new album of Doctor Who-inspired songs. It's called Still Got Legs. And, and with such exciting titles as uh, Big Bang 2, Travelling Man, Regenerate Me, The Doctor Is Dying, and Still Not Ginger. So, um, mm. yes, Plenty of Doctor Who love there. You can actually listen to the entire album free, totally free, on Alex's website at alexdaymusic.com. And if you enjoy it, please order a copy. Um, I think you can either get it digitally via iTunes or you can actually um, order like an old-fashioned real CD. My goodness. So as we we wander off, we'll we'll play the uh, second track from his album. It's called Regenerate Me. So I hope you enjoy it. And we'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Trev, fancy a dance? Oh, I thought you'd never ask. Mm. Vigilante of time and space you can't defeat me You can fight And you may shoot me But you can't exterminate me Regenerate me Regenerate me Lonely saviour in line of all my kin King of sacrifice
and bearer of justice I am your last chance to repent Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. Oh.